Welcome back to the Residents and Fellows Audio Corner. This is Shobhana Rajan, anesthesiologist at Allegheny Health Network at Pittsburgh and chair of the Trainee Engagement Committee of the SNAC. As we grapple amidst the COVID-19 pandemic as anesthesiologists, we are wondering how to do our best for our patients while keeping our healthcare workers safe. Today we have Dr. Alina Flexman, who is a clinical associate professor and head of the Division of Neuroanesthesia at the University of British Columbia and Vancouver General Hospital in Vancouver, Canada with us. She is going to share with us some of the expert consensus on how to manage neurosurgical patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Flexman completed her medical school training at the University of Toronto, followed by residency training at University of British Columbia and a two-year neuroanesthesia and research fellowship at the University of California at San Francisco. She has a research focus on clinical outcomes after neurosurgical and spine procedures as well as perioperative stroke. Dr. Flexman is currently chair of the neuroanesthesia section of the Canadian Anesthesiologist Society and serves as the secretary and treasurer of the Society of Neuroscience in Anesthesiology and Critical Care, the SNAC. On behalf of the Trainee Engagement Committee of the SNAC, I thank Dr. Alana Flexman for taking time out of, the, out of her busy schedule to be with us on this podcast. Thank you, Alana. Well, thank you for having me. We also have a Priyanka Patel, a CA2 resident at Allegheny Health Network, wanting to ask you a few questions. Thanks for joining us, Priyanka. Thank you. So, uh, our first question is, Elena, how have you changed preoperative evaluation practices in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, that is a great question. Um, and first of all, I hope both of you are safe in your own practices. As you're probably both aware, and most of us have undergone a lot of changes in our practice in the last few weeks. Um, I know personally the, the process for evaluating surgical patients is, seems to change on a daily basis. Um, so I'll go through what our current approach is at my institution, and I think there's some general principles that most of us could follow. Um, as, this, as this pandemic has evolved from uh, primarily travel-related to now having um, sustained community spread in many of our communities, I think the screening for COVID has also had to change. Um, so, for example, where we might have focused on a travel history in the past, I think now that's no longer sufficient to rule out a COVID infection. Um, so the first thing that I would do is, is screen the patient for their, essentially their pretest probability of having COVID. So that would be any symptoms of COVID-19, which would be fever, cough, shortness of breath, um, and some of the less common symptoms like loss of smell or taste or um, even GI symptoms. Um, fever would be the most concerning to me. Um, I'd also question the patient about whether they've had any exposures to people with uh, known disease or if they have, if they're at risk for some other reason, like being a healthcare worker. Um, and I would also examine whether the patient had any imaging findings. If they had, for example, a chest x-ray or a CT chest, that might help me make uh, an assessment. Um, if Certainly if they've had a COVID test or if they have a pending COVID test, that would be extremely relevant here um, and would be reviewed. Um, we are cognizant now that the COVID tests are not 
um, 100% um, reassuring in that there is a baseline risk of false negative testing, so we can't always rely on a negative test. But essentially, we're doing a screening for any of those symptoms, any imaging um, uh, that might make the patient at higher risk and which might make us uh, delay the surgery for further investigation, if possible. That was uh, very elaborate and very good, Alana. Thank you so much. Our, our next question to you is, what is the protocol for inducing dental anesthesia in a COVID-positive patient undergoing a neurosurgical procedure like a craniotomy or spine surgery? Yeah, so this is, this is increasingly going to be uh, something we may face in the coming months. Um, the first thing I would do if I knew the patient was positive for COVID is I would certainly be doing a preoperative assessment on the relative urgency of the procedure. Um, I think patients who are known to have COVID um, likely have a much higher risk of postoperative complications just because they're co-infected with another illness. Um, and therefore, I would avoid surgery at all costs unless it was life-threatening, essentially. Um, if you were forced to go ahead with the procedure, like it was a necessary surgery, um, then you need to be extremely cautious. And I think most institutions now um, have developed protocols for operations on patients who are COVID positive. Um, I know in my institution, we've designated several operating rooms for this purpose. Um, and the changes with those ones are that they're, yeah, they have negative pressure airflow. So that's where the relative uh, pressure flow is in towards the operating room rather than positive pressure, which is our typical airflow. And this prevents aerosolized spread of the virus outside the operating room. We've also cleared out a lot of our equipment in these operating rooms to minimize further contamination. Um, we have a protocol for having extra personnel available for these cases to um, further support the people in the operating room who are considered in full protective equipment, so they, they are unable to leave the operating room to get things. So you provide what we call a clean runner or somebody to go get equipment or drugs for that person. Um, and then obviously everybody in the room for these procedures needs to be in uh, full precautions for um, potential aerosolization of the virus. So I, I know this would likely vary somewhat by institution, but um, it, uh, most institutions would require a, like a gown, eye protection, some kind of N95 or respirator to, um, for aerosolized particles, and then gloves uh, to minimize any co both contact and aerosolized um, contamination. Um, we also are careful during these procedures to not contaminate the rest of our environment um, as much as possible. and, and um, uh, Because airway management is considered an aerosolizing procedure, if that's required, we also will wait um, for 30 minutes after extubation before transferring the patient just to minimize any further exposure of the patient, depending on where you're going after that. Thanks, Alana. Well, would you consider a rapid sequence intubation in all these patients, and do you use a glide scope versus a regular laryngoscope? Right. Those are great questions. Yes. Um, there's been several publications actually giving us good guidance on how to manage um, general anesthesia in this, in this patient group. Um, and um, as far as I'm aware, the recommendations are absolutely, as you said, so you would 
you would do some form of a rapid sequence induction where you avoid bag mass ventilation if possible. Um, mm-hmm. You use a, a lar- probably a larger than normal dose of uh, muscle relaxant to ensure the patient does not cough during the intubation. Um, and then we are also using video laryngoscopy to intubate just for several reasons. One, it's your, likely your best attempt. And two, because um, it, some, it, a Glyco, for example, would allow you to be further from the patient's face during intubation. So that's thought to have some safety benefits. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for answering that. Uh, Priyanka would like to ask the next two questions. Hello, Dr. Flexman. Uh, my question to you would be, how would you recommend management of patients who are requiring proning, for example, for a spine procedure, and would you consider um, the act of proning and, again, laying the patient back to supine aerosolizing? Yeah, thank you, Professor. That's a, an excellent question, and it's it, uh, specifically the question that we've actually been discussing in my own department recently. Um, I, I'm afraid I don't have a really straight answer for you, but certainly we have all been aware that there is a, uh, a different risk associated with prone patients, especially moving patients between supine and prone. Um, as most people who practice a lot of neuroanesthesia are aware, there's, this is a quite a tenuous time where there are multiple circuit disconnections. Their secretions are often all over the place. And suctioning may be required, which may introduce aerosolization during that time. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of dynamic pieces in this part of an anesthetic in the prone position. Um, we currently are considering whether this should be considered a full aerosolizing procedure, and I think it's definitely worth a discussion um, because of these unexpected events that may occur in the prone position that might lead to aerosolization. Um, I will say that currently we're not treating them as full aerosolizing procedures, but um, I think there will be more discussion about this in the future. Thank you. Um, my next question for you would be um, if you're able to um, describe the uh, personal protective equipment that we should be um, having while we're handling these patients. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think a lot of this would come um, definitely defer to your local recommendations and institutional guidelines for personal protective equipment because every institution will have a just different types of equipment because we source it from different places. Um, I can tell you in our institution that um, for droplet precautions, which would be for um, we use for procedures under regional anesthesia or in the middle of a procedure once they're intubated after 30 minutes, we um, we wear a gown. We have some kind. We have a surgical mask, some kind of eye protection, um, which might include goggles. Uh, we're already wearing hair protection just because it's the operating room, um, and gloves, obviously. Um, when we do aerosolizing procedures um, in my institution, we add uh, we wear N95 um, masks. Uh, I know other places have other kind of respirators, but that's what I in our institution what we currently wear. Sure. Um, do you feel, um, you know, given that there is a higher amount of asymptomatic patients versus symptomatic patients, should we be using personal protective equipment for all patients? Again, an excellent question. Um, I know for a fact that there is some controversy about that practice, even across Canada and I'm sure across the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, 
at my institution, we are currently using uh, aerosolizing precautions during aerosolizing procedures for all intubations, essentially, and extubations. Um, we are not using it for regional anesthesia or, or procedures with sedation, for example, or um, uh, during the case after 30 minutes has passed, which is considered to be when the aerosolizing particles would have settled. Um, there are other institutions that are using those precautions all the time, and others have not gone to that in time, to using aerosolizing precautions for everybody. So I really think this is a, a dynamic process, and some of it depends a bit on what your baseline infection rate is in your community and how likely it is that you'll have um, an asymptomatic patient who might actually be a carrier for COVID. Sure, thank you. So it looks like there's been a lot of discussion about aerosolizing procedures uh, during neurosurgical anesthesia. We did discuss intubation and proning. Uh, what about drilling of the bone during craniotomy, Alana? Would that be aerosolizing as well? Oh, that's a good question. Um, we haven't considered that to be aerosolizing for virus particles just because of the location of the drilling. Um, we're currently considering procedures, though, through the nose, so any transnasal procedures like a pituitary resection um, would be considered aerosolizing because they anything that disrupts the nasal mucosal or pharyngeal uh, mucosa is, is now in our decision considered um, aerosolizing for the virus. Um, so those ones we would take um, full precautions during the entire procedure. Sure. So is it okay to do transpenoidal uh, surgery in a patient who is COVID positive? Do we need to do COVID testing before we do these surgeries? What is the uh, general protocol for that, Alana? Yeah, so that that concern came up um, basically through reports from China that found, and then subsequently Iran as well, that found that there were a higher than average number of ENT surgeons and ophthalmologists that had contracted the disease. Um, and there was felt to be um, potentially high shedding of the virus from the nasal cavity that had not really been recognized initially. Um, and that they, China had gone to a procedure of testing uh, twice uh, because of the potential false negative rate. Um, and then they would have deferred patients who were positive. And even if they were negative, they would still, I believe, continue to use airborne precautions. I know it's, again, it's institutional in terms of what, the, how this will be approached, I think, for each of our hospitals. At my hospital, we are taking, you know, that into consideration and we are um, carefully considering whether these transnasal surgeries are first of all, absolutely required right now. And secondly, if there's an alternative approach to that procedure, for example, an open craniotomy is an option, although it's really up to a discussion with your neurosurgeon. Um, and then um, we are currently considering testing these patients prior to taking to doing head and neck surgery that invades the, um, the, the nasal mucosa. So I don't know that you can say that there's a blanket no to doing these procedures, but I do think you have to be very conscious of the potential that these are higher than average risk of causing virus aerosolization during the case. Sure. And um, uh, about ischemic stroke patients, uh, how should we handle a stroke patient coming in for endovascular therapy for uh, 
acute stroke. Yeah, another great question. Um, there are actually, in the last few days, there have been several um, guidelines re- released, both by SNAC will be releasing very soon some guidelines uh, addressing this specifically, and I believe there's some from other societies for radiology. Um, I think there's some basic uh, uh, basic approach that you can take to these cases. Um, first of all, these are cases that are emergent, so there is a limited ability to screen the patient, both by time, but also because the patient is often neurologically compromised. So it's difficult to do a really accurate assessment on the patient. Um, in addition, they we know now from preliminary reports from the, uh, China from the early pandemic that uh, COVID patients may have an increased risk of ischemic stroke, and so they, we may actually be seeing these patients more often in the coming weeks. Um, so for that reason, I know at my institution, we're basically assuming that all these patients could have COVID, um, and I think this is an approach taken by several centers. Um, therefore, we've altered our practice somewhat in that we are taking a, more, a lower threshold for using general anesthesia and controlled intubation rather than taking the risk of an intra-procedural conversion, which would be less controlled. Um, so we're, we're um, choosing carefully who we allow to go forward with MAC. Uh, if we do general anesthesia, we, we take several precautions. We, we use full protective equipment, including an N95. Um, we, we aim to intubate our patients in the emergency department, which has isolation negative pressure rooms. Um, because in our institution, the IR suite currently is not able to become negative pressure. Um, and then there's all the considerations around wearing lead and um, full protective equipment, which requires a very, um, a very clear process for donning and doffing around your radiology suite. It also leads to, for us, it's led to separation of the control room from the radiology suite which normally would have been accessible. Multiple people go in and out during the procedure, but now um, we're no longer doing that, which has required extra personnel to be involved in the case. Um, it's also made communication difficult at times just for um, just because of sound issues, which we're getting around using um, alternate ways of communication. Um, and then finally, if they have a general anesthetic in our interventional suite, we're now considering moving the patient to the recovery room to extubate them in a negative pressure environment rather than doing it in the radiology suite and then transferring the patient. So with these procedures, there's also a lot more transferring of the patient around the hospital, which is another consideration. So all in all, I think it's a relatively complex uh, procedure that may be required during this pandemic. Um, And it's important to have um, good planning up front, I think, before you get into the procedure to have a, a clear plan about how you're going to approach it to minimize contamination for the personnel. Sure. So if uh, you plan, if we plan to do uh, monitored anesthesia care in some of the patients, uh, is it a good idea to put on a viral filter? I'm hearing uh, some things like there's a viral filter that is available in to decrease the viral uh, Spilling when a patient is breathing spontaneously or coughing, is that something that you are planning to do in your hospital? Uh, and is it a good idea? 
Yeah, that's a good that's a good consideration. I think it will depend a little bit on each of our um, equipment. I know for us, we for when we do sedation, we are um, not planning to use a specific filter. Um, we're okay. going to use the plan would be to use nasal prongs um, less than six liters a minute, just to minimize the potential for aerosolization. With and the patient would wear a surgical mask just in case they cough during the procedure. Um, but I do know other centers may have alternate, the ability to do other things to, per, to minimize spread if there is virus. Sure. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Flexman, uh, for being with us today. And um, this brings us to the end of this uh, podcast. Um, I know you're so busy with um, other things that you have to do, and we really appreciate that you could spend some time with us today to answer some of our questions. Yes, thank you to you both.